All right, so this is going to be more fun than talking about depravity. Uh, but we talked about depravity, and there is a method of my madness. The reason I wanted to talk about that last week is to set up this week, okay? Um, depravity, understanding total depravity, man's condition before Christ is essential because those of us in the room who are in Christ were once in that state. And it helps us understand what's happened to our lives, that if you don't understand the bad news, how bad the bad news really is, you'll never fully appreciate the good news. So that's really why I wanted to dwell on that. Now, as we talk about grace, this is one of those topics that we're, we're all kind of familiar with, or at least we think we are. And uh, we're going to find out in Martin Luther's day, grace was not a new topic. It wasn't something that he made up or he suddenly found in the scriptures. The Catholic Church talked about grace, and they talked about faith, and they talked about all these things, but it becomes a matter of definition. Uh, what do these terms mean to them, and what do they mean to us? And so what I want us to do is wrestle with what do we know about, what do we think about grace, the grace of God, and hopefully it'll maybe take a different meaning for us this morning. And so I can't help but think about grace Having grown up in a, a Christian home in a Baptist church, my dad was a pastor, we sang a lot of hymns, and those hymns are like seared into my brain cells. And so I, I think about these hymns like this one, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. Now I grew up singing that as a kid. I had it memorized. I knew all the verses because we always sang all the verses. Um, and, but that, that hymn never meant anything to me. I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I knew the words. I didn't know the meaning or the significance behind the words. And this idea that it's God's grace, it comes from him. It's something he gives us. And we don't, I don't think, fully appreciate what we've been given. But if you look back what we said last week about total depravity and the state of man apart from Christ, grace, we're going to find out, is God's response to what? Man's depravity. You know what my response to man's depravity is? Wipe them out. Just get rid of them. Anybody who murders, anybody who commits um, an offense against a child, anybody who beats his wife, anybody, I just want to wipe them out. That's my reaction as a human being to total depravity, even though that's who I once was. What's God's response? It's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. So why is this grace so amazing? Well, once again, you got to look at this issue of depravity as we did last week. Here's, here's the way it hits me. You'll never fully understand or appreciate the glory of grace until what? You understand the gravity of depravity, how, how horrible this thing is. And I was talking to one of the gentlemen this morning, and, you know, it doesn't take long. We just taught on depravity last week, and it doesn't take long for something to happen in our culture like Las Vegas where you see depravity on display, and he made the comment, he said, I watched the news and it's interesting to watch and these newscasters all trying to figure out what caused this man to do this. You know, was it, is he part of jihad? Is he, is he, you know, was he beaten by his dad? What, what, what's causing him to do this? 
And, and what do we know is causing him to do this? He's depraved. And but for the grace of God, any man in the room could do anything as heinous as that because he's depraved, because it permeates every part of his being. I'm sure there are other factors involved that they're going to dig up and find out. But at the end of the day, the answer to man's depravity is that they're depraved. They're sinful. They're born into sin. They're imputed sin. And so how does God respond with grace? With grace. So how does a holy and just and righteous God respond to sinful, rebellious human beings? Grace. What did we get? We got grace. You know, it tells us back in Genesis, because of the fall, here's what they were told. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They were warned. Adam was warned. Eve hadn't yet come onto the scene. He was the head of the eventual home that God created. He was told, you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of this tree. The only thing. And what happened? He sinned. She sinned, he sinned, and as a result, death came into the world, and the wages of that is death. Death is hanging over this culture, the spirit of death, the threat of death, not just physical death, but eternal death, separation from God. And, and that creates this atmosphere to where we're told by Paul that you... Me, even though I'm in Christ, there was a point in time when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was in that state just like anybody else who doesn't know Jesus Christ. I was in a bad state. I was a child of wrath according to this passage. I deserve the wrath of God. You deserve the wrath of God. And yet, I love this passage, and I'm actually going to use it on Sunday. These are my two favorite words in the Bible, but God. In the midst of that, in the midst of your rebellion, rebellion and your uh, enmity with God, you're, you are an enemy of God. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So as bad as you were in the state that you were in, in the mess and the mire and the muck of your life, he reached in and he showed you grace, undeserved, unmerited grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's what I'm going to preach on on Sunday is faith. What is faith? It's a vehicle. It's a means. It's not a commodity. It's not something you muster up. It's not, some, it's not a work. You know, the, the illustration that God gave me literally this morning, I was trying to think of a way to, how do you illustrate faith? Because we think of faith as a work. And, and the image that came to my mind is if you could picture a hand reaching out to grab something. Our idea of faith is God's got something out there that I want, salvation, eternity, and I'm going to grab it. I got to grab it. I got to have faith. And the bigger my hand and the stronger my arm, the more faith, the more I can get of God. Faith is actually this. It's, it's an upturned hand. It's letting him give you what he's already done for you. See, there's a whole difference between this and this. It's subtle, but it's huge. And so it's by faith, through faith, 
that we appropriate this. It's the gift of God. He gives it to us, his grace. And that's amazing. What's his response to our rebellion? Grace. But what, is, what does it mean? What does grace mean? Well, I want to go back and look at the 1500s where Martin Luther and everyone else was living. And I want to look at the Catholic Church once again and see what was the attitude about grace in those days. Remember, the Catholic Church was the only show in town. There were no Protestant churches at this point in time, yet they were coming. Uh, they controlled everything. And so the definitions were controlled by them. And so I want to look at what was going on. And there's a couple of guys we want to look at this morning. One is Augustine and the other one is Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I have no idea what, what these guys look like. I hope they didn't look like this. But um, one's, uh, one was a bishop, a bishop of Hippo. He's uh, from North Africa. And I chose this image of him. There's a slew of images. It's, it's really kind of funny. He's from North Africa. And the majority of the images, he's white. I don't, that didn't make sense to me. So this one, he at least looks like he has a tan. So he was an African, North Africa. The, the church was, became very vibrant in North Africa. And so he's the bishop there, lived in the fifth century. Thomas Aquinas comes along in the 13th century. He's from Italy and he's a Dominican. What do we know about the Dominicans? The Dominicans were that orders, order of monks who were against Luther. He was an Augustinian. They didn't like each other. This was an old order. And so you've got Thomas Aquinas, who became one of the premier um, articulators of the faith for the Catholic Church. But what's interesting is when you go back and you read a lot of his theology, it was ignored by the Catholic Church. It was kind of, we like this, we don't like this. And so what I want to look at is these two men, one from the 5th century, one from the 13th century, because they both had a huge influence on the Reformation and on this idea of grace. What is God's grace? And so it's going to come into the Catholic Church, and then you're going to have the Reformers start bubbling up to the surface. They're going to look at the Scriptures, and they're going to look at the teachings and the writings of the Catholic Church, and they're going to see discrepancies, and they're going to see a difference in what they think are the definitions of grace and what the church sees as the definitions and things are going to, once again, begin to change over time. So as we said, it's a gift of God. Augustine's, his thoughts on grace were really um, influenced by one individual and influenced in a negative way. In other words, he looked at this guy, and this guy's name is Pelagius. This is a guy you want to invite to a party. Look at that face. Um, Pelagius was a fifth century theologian and um, a contemporary of Augustine, and they were like arch enemies. They were nemesis. They didn't like each other. And Augustine responded to the teachings of Pelagius. You may have heard of Pelagianism, and we'll talk about that in a second. He was from Britain. Um, they don't show his teeth, but I assume they're probably bad. Um, he's from Britain. He's a layman. He's not a priest, but he's kind of a theologian. He's a thinker. He's a philosopher. And he is appalled at, he's a, he's a Catholic, and he got a chance to go to Rome. And much like Luther, when he went to Rome, he was appalled at what he saw as moral laxity, the, the things going on within the church and within the community of the holy city. And so he begins to write about these things. And what's interesting is he blamed Augustine, who was a really prolific writer, he blamed him for the problems in Rome because of his doctrine of divine grace. 
and, and it's, it's basically what Paul dealt with in uh, Galatians when he writes about um, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the reaction of some of the people was, well, should we just keep sinning so that grace may abound? If grace is God's response to sin, why don't I just keep sinning and get more grace? And what did Paul say? What are you nuts? No, that's illogical. That makes no sense. And so the same thing's going on here. He says, you keep talking about this divine grace, this gift of God, and we have grace, and it's causing everybody to sin because of grace. And so you can see this battle that gets set up between these two men. So here's what Pelagius began to write, and it turned into this doctrine, this uh, belief system that permeated, began to permeate the church, spread throughout the church, and here's what they said. Humanity is basically good and unaffected by the fall. We looked at this last week. Origen said this. Aristotle taught this, that man is basically good, and it's what permeates our society today. That's why when something happens like what happened in Las Vegas, the newscasters don't know what to do with that. Well, man's, man's good. Why would, what caused him to do that? Because man is good. Something must have happened. The way he was raised, his parents, his economic status, he had uh, head injuries. There's something that happened. No, he's, he's evil because he's born into depravity. Humanity is basically good and unaffected by the fall. They denied the imputation of Adam's sin. In other words, Adam's sin, he got punished by God, but that didn't get put onto us. They also contested the doctrines of original sin and total depravity that we talked about last week. They refuted the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was not in your place. They believed that Jesus died as an example for us, nothing more. He didn't take on your sins. He just died a humiliating death, and we are to use it as an example that's pretty defeating, isn't it? That's my example for life, to watch a guy die on the cross. He lived morally, follow that. But if you have to die, you have to die. That's what they believed and taught. Man has a free will, they believed, and the ability to obey God without divine aid, and man can earn eternal salvation without God's help. So this begins to permeate the church and permeate society. And you can see the common people beginning to wrestle with, okay, who's right? Is it Pelagius? Is it the church? Who do I believe? And so you're going to see that Augustine's going to bow up and just like Martin Luther did in his century, he's going to bow up in the fifth century and begin to wrestle with this. Because what Pelagius is basically saying is that Adam's sin was just a bad example. What Adam did, we shouldn't do. Don't follow his example. And Jesus was a good example. Don't do this, do this. Don't follow his example, follow Jesus' example. And they believed and taught and spread the idea that man is born in a state of innocence just like Adam. Adam was born or created by God and he was what? Good. God said, this is good. He was born in a state of righteousness, created in a state of righteousness. So are we. We don't have the sin of Adam where we come out of the womb and we're just this untainted little creature that has the choice to either do good or do, do evil. That's what they taught. And so here's, here's the reaction. Here's, here's what we need to look at. Doctrines, this is the, the writings of Pelagius, basically. 
Okay, listen to what he says. Doctrines are inventions of the human mind as it tried to penetrate the mystery of God. You will realize that Scripture itself is the work of human mind. So he rejects the idea of the divine essence of Scripture, recording the example and teaching of Jesus. Thus, it is not what you believe that matters. It's how you respond with your heart and your actions. It's not believing in Christ that matters. It is becoming like him. Now, if Luther had been alive at this point in time, I can't imagine what he would have done or what he would have said, because this is pretty radical stuff. He goes on and says, the best incentive for the mind consists in teaching, teaching it that it is possible to do anything which one really wants to do. So here's Pelagius. Here's a doctrine. It's, it's going to be deemed a heresy by the Catholic Church and ultimately by the Protestant reformers. He goes on and says, the presence of God's spirit in all living things is what makes them beautiful. And if we look with God's eyes, nothing on earth is ugly. Really? See, you got a major league dump the idea of depravity to reach this conclusion. You know, you can't look at what we see happening in this culture and in this world and in Las Vegas and say, nothing on earth is ugly if you see it through the eyes of God. No, God looks down and says what? No one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all deserve death. But his response is grace to that. See, this guy at the core was a moralist and he believed that man could become righteous. And we have people who believe that today. And they believe that I don't need God, I can do this on my own. I can be a good person. I can achieve a sense of righteousness without God's help. But Augustine, just like Luther, couldn't disagree more strongly. And he fought against this guy tooth and toenail. And he, he fully embraced what we talked about last week, Augustine did, that man is depraved. He wrote about it constantly. And that man has no ability to do righteous things. Now man, as we said last week, unsaved man can do good things, unsaved man can do what appear to be righteous things, but they're righteous on an earthly level, not on a heavenly level. God looks down and he sees them as what? Filthy rags. We may look at him and go, wow, that's pretty impressive. Look what he did. Look what he gave. Look how much he served. Look how wonderful he is. He's a good dad. He's a good parent. But God looks down. If he's not in Christ, he doesn't see any of those deeds as righteous, the kind of righteousness that will get him right with God. And so Augustine fights with this guy. See, Augustine believed in man's need for divine assistance. Here's what he said. Even those good works of ours, which are recompensed with eternal life, belong to the grace of God. Any good work you do as a Christian is up to and deserving of only God's glory because it's by his grace that you accomplish it. And you should never take credit for it. You should never glory in it. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. See, I can't do righteous deeds without Christ, without the power of the Holy Spirit. The cool thing is, is that I can now, and before I couldn't. Prior to Christ, I couldn't do good things that would be deemed good by God. Now I can, but they're all done in the power of the Holy Spirit because it's all grace. See, grace permeates everything. It permeates our salvation. It permeates our sanctification. Augustine went on and said, but inasmuch as we have even our good works from God, from whom likewise comes our faith and our love, therefore the self-same great teacher of the Gentiles has designated eternal life itself as his gracious gift. Everything comes from God. 
Guys, everything you have comes from God. Your salvation comes from God. Your sanctification comes from God. Your ultimate glorification will come from God. It all comes from God, and it is total grace. What's amazing is, as much as we are performance-driven and we need credit all the time and a pat on the back and told how great we are, God looks down, and he never awards us. He never looks down and goes, man, Ken, you're doing a great job. You are fantastic. You're, you know, man, that lesson you did today, that, man, I, I was impressed. You know, God never does that. And I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with that because God looks at me and sees me as righteous. That's all that should really matter to me because I don't have to earn his favor. I already have it. You know, if I teach the worst lesson I ever taught this morning, God would look down on me with grace you would look at me and go, God, that guy stinks. I got up at this morning, this early in the morning to come hear this guy teach that garbage. And you would walk away angry, frustrated, probably not come back. God looks at me and goes, grace, because I'm not earning anything. I'm not meriting anything. I already have grace. It's all grace. That doesn't mean I shouldn't study hard. It doesn't mean I shouldn't know my material. It doesn't mean I shouldn't present it in a, in a good way, in a, a strong way. But at the end of the day, I'm not doing it to get approval. I'm already approved. It's a different motivation. I love this from Carl Truman from his book, Grace Alone. The biblical teaching of grace begins by setting grace up as a response to the fallen condition of this world and of humanity. How we understand grace as the solution to the sinful condition is determined in a large, to a large extent by how we understand the extent and nature of the problem. It's what I said earlier. If you don't understand the problem, you'll never appreciate the grace. The glory of grace is as great or directly proportional to the gravity or how you see the gravity of sin. See, I look at my life and I think, man, I love grace. And when I was seven years old and walked down the aisle of my dad's church, I had no concept of grace. All I was doing was, and I think it was legitimate and I think it was real, I wanted to have Jesus as my savior because I didn't want to go to hell. Because my dad was a good Southern Baptist pastor and he scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I wanted to go to heaven and I knew the only way to get there was to go through Jesus but I had no concept of grace. I had no concept of total depravity. I had no concept of how sinful I was at seven years old. Not because of my behavior, but because of my condition. I'm 63 now. I know how sinful I am. I know depravity. I know grace. Because the longer I've lived, the greater my eyes have been opened to the reality of the sinfulness of man, my condition, and the grace of God and how much I need that grace. That's what we should be hanging our hat on and really grabbing onto. Grace is God's response to man's hopeless condition. It is not a power he provides so you can do good deeds, so you can earn favor. And see, that's what we do with grace. If we think, okay, and that's what the Catholic Church does with grace. You're baptized as an infant into the church and you receive grace. And that grace washes away all of your sins imputed by Adam. They believe in imputed sin, but at baptism as an infant, it's washed away and you get a clean slate. But then you have to keep going back to the seven sacraments and you gotta keep doing those things to receive additional grace, power, so that you can do good deeds to ultimately earn salvation. 
You see the difference in the definition? It's a power. It's not a gift. It's a power that you have to put in your tank so that you can do the things you need to do to get God to look down and go, you're righteous. And it may take you all of purgatory to do it. But your goal is just keep plugging away. More grace, more grace. That's why people would buy indulgences so that you could get more grace in purgatory. Your loved one in purgatory could get more grace, more merit, so he could have more energy to do good deeds to ultimately get out of purgatory. There's a huge difference. He goes on and says, grace is that aspect of divine action by which God blesses his rebellious creatures, whether through preservation, common grace, in other words, everybody gets God's common grace, but more importantly, salvation, his special grace. See, if you're in Christ this morning, you've received his special grace. You've received the gift of grace, his redemption through his son, forgiveness of your sins, restoration with, to him in a right relationship. It's all a gift. It's been given to you by God in spite of your sinfulness. And see, sometimes, guys, we look at ourselves and we have this attitude that I was better than the next person. I wasn't a bad sinner. There's no such thing as a not-so-bad sinner. It's like a half-pregnant woman. They don't exist. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. Yeah, they get bigger, but at conception, she's pregnant. We are born in sin. Now, we may commit more sins than another or less sins than another, but we're still a sinner. And we still deserve the same thing. So an understanding of sin's gravity helps us understand and appreciate the glory of grace. That's why we did depravity last week. That's why when you see what happens in the paper and you, you see the newscast and you, you see man's sin displayed before your eyes, it should be a reminder, but for the grace of God, go I. Had it not been for Christ, I would have that same capacity. But I've been shown grace. Grace is always the solution to the sin problem. There is no other solution. Gun control is not the solution. Government spending is not the solution. Better education is not the solution. Therapy is not the solution. There is no solution other than the grace of God, which includes the Son of God dying on the cross in my place and in your place. It's the grace of God. Human beings have an innate problem. They need to love God, but can't do so in their own power. Why? Because of sin. Human nature must be healed and restored. See, I don't know what caused that guy to do what he did. I don't know what causes anybody to do anything other than sin, selfishness, self-centeredness, hatred, malice, enmity against God, slavery to, to the, the enemy of God, the, Satan himself, but the answer is healing. You need healing. You need restoration. You need the solution. Everyone has sinned, Paul says. We all fall short of that glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. Freely. That's the, man, don't miss that. Freely. It's not based on your merit. See, all of these, these uh, five solas that are being preached through the pulpit, you know, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, those five things, do not separate them and make them five stones on a ring. They are actually one stone with multiple facets. They all fit together. You can't separate them. Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, they all come together. And if you separate them, 
they don't work. And so we need to realize that what we have, guys, what, if you are in Christ, you have this incredible grace. And it didn't stop at the cross. It continues. Every day you live in God's grace. Every day you have the gift of his spirit working within you. You have to appropriate it. You have to listen to him. You have to abide by what he says and, and do what he tells you to do. But you have it every day. So can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith. Notice it doesn't say by faith. It's through faith. Faith is a, a uh, channel. It's this. Hold your hand out. It's not this. It's not grabbing something from God. I want salvation. I'm going to get salvation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something to earn something. No, it's... Hold your hand out. I need grace. When you live the Christian life, guys, we, are, we, are, we live in a work ethic society where you just got to work. You got you to churn it out every day. And that may be true of your job. That may be true of your career. But it's not true of your salvation. Yes, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But that doesn't mean that you have to earn anything. It really means that you're holding out your hand to God, realizing that I live in complete dependency on you. And my sanctification, my growth in holiness has to come from you. And when you read the Bible, which I hope you do, and you study the Bible, it's not to earn favor. It's, it's a means by which you expose yourself to, to the Spirit and to God so he can speak to you. It's not to gain knowledge. It's not to fill your head with words. It's to allow God to speak to you because it's the primary means he does speak to us. So read the Bible because I want to hear from you. Talk to me. Speak to me. Change me. Mold me. Make me into the man you want, to, want me to be. What I don't want you to do is look at some other guy and go, man, I wish I was spiritual like him. If you could see that guy behind the scenes, you'd probably change your mind. If you could see what he's like at home, you may see an aspect of him that's not so spiritual. He's not your goal. He's not your objective. Christ is. But see, what I got to do is I got to say, I want to be like Christ. I don't know how. I don't have it within me. But Spirit, fill me, help me, teach me, help me understand the word. But you got to be in it. You got to do your part. But it's still a gift. It's still grace. And we've got to relish this idea of grace. Paul goes on in Romans 3.30, there's only one God. He makes people right with himself only by faith, through the vehicle of faith. It's faith, trusting in him, holding out your hand and saying, I can't do this. I need you to do it for me. He makes you right with him. Grace is always the response to mankind's slavery to sin. It's not a response to your repentance. Now, let me clarify that. This is really important, guys. Repentance is huge. Repentance is you turning from where you were and turning to something. Doug Cecil always likes to say, you're putting your trust in something before Christ and you got to take your trust away from that and putting it in Christ. I'm trusting in my career. I'm trusting in financing. I'm trusting in the government. I'm trusting in something. Now I'm going to turn and I'm going to trust Christ. Put my trust there. Grace is not a response to your repentance 
you remember Luther always going into confession to try to repent of all of his sins and he never could exhaust the number of sins and he got so frustrated and Staupitz, his confessor, got really frustrated because he just kept coming back and he wouldn't stop. See, it's not about you confessing all your sins. It's about God responding to your sin. In other words, I don't have to clean up my act before I get grace. I get grace in the midst of my messiness. That's amazing. That's amazing grace. Somebody ought to write a song. In the midst of my sin, he shows me grace. In the midst of your sin today, God will show you grace. See, what you got to get out of your head is that God is up in heaven with a stick waiting for you to screw up. And he's going to smack you upside the head. There, you did it again. When are you going to learn? How much do I have to do to make you learn? When are you going to get it through your thick head? And he smacks you again. That's our view of God. That is not grace. Grace is God continually responding to your sin with what? Grace. Mercy. The gift of his son, the gift of his spirit, the gift of his word. This book is always available. You can turn to it any day. You could sin like a banshee today. And you can always come back to this word and say, Father, help me, teach me, cleanse me. Grace, he's never beating you. See, man's enslaved to sin. We talked about this last week. We were misled and became slaves. He saved us, not because the righteousness, the righteous things we had done. We were slaves and then he saved us, not because we got our act together. It was grace. We went from slave to free captive to free. Based on what? Our merit? No, based on his grace. I love the story of Exodus. Taught through it. I love to study it. And I think of this story in Exodus 36. God looks down and he says, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, he tells Moses, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. Now look at what he says. I have seen, I have heard, I have come down to rescue. I have come down to lead them out. See, God responds to our captivity to sin, which is the picture here with what? Grace. Now, here's what you got to keep in mind about the people of Israel at this point in time living in Egypt. They are not worshiping Yahweh in the least. We find out later in the book of Exodus that they have been sinning by worshiping the gods of Egypt. So those 10 plagues that God did, every one of those plagues was against the God of Egypt. Who were those lessons for? The Egyptians? No, it was for the Israelites. So that they may know that I am God. They had long ago forgotten that he was their God. 400 years, guys, four centuries, four generations, they had forgotten that he was God and he was gonna show them I'm God not Pharaoh or any of the deities that, that they worship. In the midst of that sin, literal captivity, but spiritual captivity, God looks down and he shows them grace. Didn't deserve it, and he sets them free. I go back to Ephesians. But God, but God, richness, mercy, he gave us life when we were dead. 
He raised us up from the dead, from our captivity, from our deception, from our blindness, the incredible wealth of his grace as shown in all that he has done for us. When we were dead, when we were helpless, when we were hopeless, when we were defeated, in the midst of that, our captivity to sin, he reached out with grace. So let's look at Aquinas for just a second. Here's what Aquinas said centuries later. It is from God and not from man that a man has every power of well-being which he possesses. He cannot therefore merit anything from God except by means of God's gift. It is obvious that all merit is opposed to grace. If you're trying to earn it, you miss the point. Whether it's salvation or sanctification, if you're trying to earn it, you miss the point. You miss grace. Grace is the thing that we should rest in and hope in and put our... Put our future in. Every day I get grace. It's inexhaustible. The reason why God, I guess Aquinas says, the reason why God gives grace only to the worthy is not that they were previously worthy. Now this is, you got to follow him here, but that by grace, God makes them worthy. So he's talking about people that have come to faith in Christ. They are now worthy, made righteous, justified. And the reason he keeps giving more is because they're justified, not because they're earning it. So what does that mean to me as a Christian? When I placed my faith in Christ, I was declared righteous by God, justified. Now I'm living my life. I'm 63 years into it. And every day he gives me more grace. Why do I need more grace? Because every day I sin. Every day I fail. Every day I'm tempted to turn away from him. Every day I'm tempted to fall back into captivity to my sin nature. And he gives me grace. And he reaches out and he says, Ken, I'm here. I want to help. Your spirit, my spirit's in you. I've given you my word. I've surrounded you with a body of, with a body of Christ. Grace upon grace upon grace. But you have to avail yourself of it. It's grace that makes us worthy every single day of our lives. So this is going to flow into the reformers. It's going to impact them. And it's going to raise all kinds of debates between the Catholic Church and between the reformers. And it brings up the idea of the efficacy of grace. This is what the reformers like Luther and Calvin and others began to see in Scripture. And efficacy just means it's effective. Is God's grace always effective? Yes. It's always effective. Can it ever be turned down and refused? See, these are going to be things that they debate and this is where you're going to see the splintering of the Protestant movement. And you're going to end up with Calvinists. And you're going to end up Reformed. You're going to end up with Anabaptists. And, because they began to debate these things. Is his grace always effective? Is his grace, can I, turn, can I turn away God's grace? And I'm not going to give you the answer to these questions, guys. Because I want you once again to have to wrestle with, what do you think? When you read about God's grace, all the verses we've looked at, what do you think about God's grace? Can you turn your nose up at it as a believer? Can you reject it and turn it down? Well, maybe you say, well, yeah, I think I do it every day. Well, I hope what you walk away with it. Why in the world would you do that? What would possess you to turn your nose up at the grace being given to you every day by God? Well, how about the imperative of grace? The imperative of grace. They wrestled with this. Is it a requirement for salvation? Is it necessary? See, Pelagius would say, no, it's not. You don't need God's grace. You don't need God's help. You can do this on your own. Can man, man gain salvation apart from grace? Can I just muster up enough 
in me to say, well, I think I want to have a relationship with God, therefore I can, or do I need the grace of God to make that possible? See, this is what the reformers, we sometimes think of the reformers as they suddenly read something, the light bulb goes on, and they had a completed systematic theology, and they wrote it all down. No, these guys were constantly going back and reading, and Luther would write things, and then the Melanchthon, his buddy came along and said, hey, I got a question about that, and they would begin to debate, and then Calvin comes along, and he takes Luther's writings, and he begins to expand on them because they kept studying the scriptures, and that's what I want you to do. Study the scriptures. What do you think about grace? What does grace mean? What's the essence of saving grace they had to fight with? Is it also a gift from God? Is is everything about saving faith, does he give it to you or do I do my part? This will lead to the debate between the Calvinists and the Arminians. We'll talk about that later. But it leads to all kinds of later fights that are still going on within the church. How much is God's part? How much is my part? I'll just tell you what I believe. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the power of God. I believe in the grace of God. I believe that everything I need has to come from God. How does this all work? I don't have a clue. Do I have to play a part? Sure. But ultimately, guys, if you take God out of the picture, there's no hope. There's no help. Is our faith up to us? Man, I hope not. I hope not. When I look at this world, if the hope of this world is the people in this world mustering up enough faith to discover Jesus Christ, we're in trouble. If God doesn't do something, if God doesn't reach into the hearts of man, men are doomed. Remember that Ephesians 2 passage, but God. I hope you think about those words all day today. See, they're going to deal with all of these things, and we're not going to deal with them this morning and probably not throughout this whole series, and you may be disappointed. Predestination, election, foreknowledge, foreordination, per- perseverance of the saints, free will. They began to debate on all of these things because they were trying to figure out what does God require of us. So here's the so what. Why is this important? Because it, it, it's, it's what our whole life is about. What you believe about the depth of man's sin will impact your concept of grace. If you don't understand man's sin, you'll never appreciate grace. I've said it three times. What you believe about grace will impact how you view God. How big is your God? How gracious is your God? And when you look at your own sin capacity and then you look at God that you would save me and that you would give me grace every day, that is amazing. I wouldn't give me grace, but you do. I don't even like me, but you love me. That's the grace of God. How you view God will determine whether you see his grace is truly amazing. We all know this song. I'm not going to make you sing it because I don't want to hear it. But look at the words. You've sung, you've sung them a thousand times. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Look at those last two lines. I once was lost. And I found my way back. Is that what it says? No. I once was lost and I was found. I once was blind, but now I have sight. I always love to go back to the picture of Lazarus in that cave, that tomb 
wrapped in clothes, been there three days, already starting to stink, body decaying. Jesus Christ walks up and he says, remove the stone. Mary goes, what are you nuts? He's going to stink. Remove the stone. And then what does he say? Lazarus, come forth. And he comes walking out. Did Lazarus have the capacity to do that prior to Jesus saying, come forth? No. See, this is the work of God. Spiritual life is, is the work of God. It's not me realizing I'm lost and finding my way back. It's being found by God. It's not me being blind and fixing my eyes. It's God giving me sight. It's God freeing me from sin. It's the grace of God, totally undeserved. And see, the sad thing is when we look around the world, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. God has to step in. So he tells Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. They're blind. They can't see. Go share the good news of Jesus Christ, that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people. Guys, I hope you love grace so much that you want to share it with everybody you meet, that you'll share it, you'll talk about it. And I'll close with this. Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? If you've never read it, read it. God loves people because of who God is, not because of who we are. Get that through your head. You are going to fail God today, and he loves you. You're going to disappoint yourself today, and you're, he's going to love you. You're going to disappoint your wife today, your boss today. You're going to say something, think something, do something that is not godly, and God will still love you because of who he is, not because of who you are. Grace is only free because the giver himself has borne the cost. Jesus Christ died so that you could receive the grace. As a matter of fact, he is the essence of the grace of God. He is the gift. Take advantage of it every day of your life. So here's your questions. Take a few minutes to discuss why the grace of God is amazing to you. If it isn't amazing, share why. And please be honest. If it's not that amazing, I've never thought about it. I don't ever think about it. Just say it. It's not been amazing in my life. I want you to read 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Why did, what does this message tell us about God? and How did it show up? What difference did it make? Why should that be important? Just wrestle with it. If, God's grace is, is, if grace is God's response to the sinfulness of men and that response included the death of his son, how should that thought change the way we approach him and our life of faith? Is it you working harder? Is it you mustering up more faith and trying to grab more of God? Or is it you just holding out your hand? Those are what I want you to wrestle with this morning. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for this lesson on grace. May it be driven into our minds that we serve a gracious God, a loving God, a kind God, that we would understand the greatness and the glory and the amazingness of your grace because of the depravity of our sinfulness prior to coming to faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would make us men who appreciate grace so much that we'd want to tell everybody we meet about it. I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. Lord, that's our story. And it's your story because you did it all. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.